Well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. We're continuing our study in this psalm, which is all about God's law. 176 verses, and each one tells us something about how the psalmist views God's law. He tells us that he loves God's law, he delights in it, he finds hope in it, it serves as his guide, and all of those things that he says are things that we should be able to say too. We're not always there. We don't always think of God's law this way, but we want to grow in our understanding of God's law. Today we're going to look at verses 149 to 152. And in these verses, you'll hear about God's love and God's justice and God's nearness, even while the psalmist is under attack by those who reject God's law. God's law is sure and certain. And after we look at these four verses, then we will again zoom out to see a larger principle about God's law. And we're really just today going to continue the principle that we saw last week about the case laws in the Old Testament. We'll be looking at a different, a, a new particular case law. But that's what we'll do for the second half of the message this morning. Follow along as I read Psalm 119, starting in verse 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever." Well, verse 149, hear my voice, according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. This begins telling us what the basis of the psalmist's expectation of being heard is. When he comes to God in prayer, why does he think God will hear him? It's God's steadfast love that he's shown to him. And we've talked about that many times already throughout this psalm. It's a theme that the psalmist returns to over and over again. So I just want to point out one thing for us this morning. And let me just kind of get your mind rolling by asking you the question, how do you know that someone loves you? We all here have people in our lives that love us. How do you know that they love you? What does that look like? How, what's the evidence that you see that they love you? We could list all kinds of different things that maybe people say or do or a look or whatever the case may be. There's lots of indications that someone loves you. So then transfer that question over. How has God shown his love to you? What can you point to that demonstrates that God loves you? Well, in, in lots of ways, there are some, there's some things that we all experience. You know, there's what we experience through nature. There's God's kindness and his love that is shown both to the godly and the ungodly. He, he sends rain and he's, he sends sunshine and there's all of those kinds of blessings that he gives us. But the foremost thing that gives us evidence that God loves us is what John says in 1 John 4, 9. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, or made known, made apparent, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sending Jesus to us is the greatest evidence 
of God's love for us. Now, the psalmist, as he writes in Psalm 119, doesn't have any experience of that. Jesus hasn't come yet at this point. But the things that he's saying about God's love, we today, when we hear those words, we know that the, the, the biggest single evidence of God's love for us is that he has sent his son, Jesus, to earth. The psalmist also says, according to your justice, give me life. Now, if you just pause and think about that for a minute, according to God's justice on our own, we deserve death. So it's interesting that the psalmist appeals to God on the basis of God's justice to give him life. See, it's only in Christ that we can receive life and at the same time, God's justice be satisfied. So the means by which God accomplishes this is the incarnation of Christ. What John was writing about, God sending his son to us. See, our situation is that as men, we need a man to represent us before God. But there are no perfect men to represent us. And even if there was a perfect man, his value or his worth wouldn't cover all the rest of us. It would just be his own value or worth. And God's solution here is the incarnation of Christ. As God... Christ's value is infinite. But as God, according to justice, he couldn't represent us. We need a man to represent us. And so God sends his son, Jesus, into the world to become a man to represent us. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, so he's the son of God, he's divine, born of a woman, so he's a man, he's human, fully God, fully man, born under the law, so he's answerable to the law, he's going to take the penalty of the law in our place. So God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, and what does that accomplish? He sent him to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's God's steadfast love. And because God is just, because Christ has already paid our penalty, there's nothing that stands between God and us. God's justice means he will never hold our sins against us because Christ has already paid the penalty for those sins. Let me try to give you an example. If, if you have a good law in your country, that law is at the same time a threat to a criminal and a comfort to a law-abiding citizen. It presents danger for the criminal because he's violating the law but it presents some security for the law-abiding citizen. In a similar way, God's justice is, at the same time, a terror for unbelievers. God's justice means eternal death and hell for unbelievers. 
But for believers, God's justice is a comfort. I know God will never hold my sins against me because Christ has paid the penalty for those sins. So God's justice is a threat to the unbeliever, but it's a comfort to believers at the same time. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Verse 150 then, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. God's people can expect the persecution of the ungodly. The ungodly seek the destruction of the people of God. Psalm 83 verse 12, the enemies of God's people say, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. If you think about this, this is a constant theme in lots of good books and movies, especially movies like superhero movies. Uh, Superman has his Lex Luthor. Batman has the Joker and Penguin and Riddler, right? Why? Why is there always this, this evil that is opposing the good? Because that's the reality of our world. That's the true story. It's the reality of Satan and evil. That war is real. And the war goes all the way back to the garden. It's the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And you can see that in what the psalmist says here. So what characterizes these people who persecute the, the psalmist? Well, they are far from God's law. They reject God's law. They disobey God's law. By way of contrast then, God's people are characterized by nearness to God's law. They obey it. It guides their life. For God's people, as we read earlier this morning, we have God on our side, Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. And that leads us then to the next verse, verse 151. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. See, in the previous verse, the persecutors, the ungodly, are near. But God is nearer. God's given us a promise of his nearness. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's present. He's with us. He's near. God can be near to individual people. Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. God can be near to a nation. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, this is in the context of God giving his law to the nation of Israel and the other nations looking on and seeing what that looks like when they obey God's law. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? See, obeying God's law in a nation is evidence that God is near to the nation. And we can invite God's nearness in our lives. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's the basis, the, the ground of God's nearness to us. Let me just give you two things. There are many, but let me just give you two. The first one is God's covenant. God promises to be our God, and we promise to be his people. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God is our God. He's our sovereign. And even while he is our sovereign, he is also at the same time our friend. James 2:23 Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So God's covenant is one of the the reasons that God is near to us. Another reason is union with Christ. We've been joined with Christ. We talked earlier about the incarnation. So Christ as the God man is united to the Father. The, the fancy theology term for that is the hypostatic union. He's fully God and fully man together. Now, we are united to Christ, but it's not in the same way. But it is a shadow of it. it. That points us in the right direction. We have union with Christ. And the Bible gives us some pictures to understand that, like a head and body. Christ is the head, we are the body. Or the vine and the branches. He's the vine and we are the branches. We're connected There's a nearness there. There's a union with him. And we're united with him in his death, Paul says in Romans 6, so we will be united with him in his resurrection. So the nearness of God to us is based on his covenant. It's based on our union with Christ, amongst other things. And this nearness is a, it's a spiritual nearness. Let me just kind of read a couple of verses for you. Just listen to what these things have to say about this. What is it that caused us to not be near to God? It's our sin. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. But then what is it that brings us near? Well, it's Christ's work as our mediator. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And it's specifically his blood that opens the way for us to come to God. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what should we do with that? Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's exactly what you see the psalmist doing in Psalm 119. Verse 152 then says, Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Long have I known. We know things by different means. Sometimes we know things just by experience. And so you try something and it doesn't work right and you fix it and you learn and you you gain experience and you you come to know things by experience. And we've seen this all through the psalm. The psalmist has experiences of God's words and their faithfulness. And so he's learned in that way. But sometimes knowing something for a long time means you were taught this as a child. And a a, a few passages of scripture came to my mind as I was reading this that I think are are probably applicable here. Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down 
And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As you raise a family in the Lord, you need to train them, teach them a biblical understanding, a biblical worldview. You need to teach the things that God has taught. And it's, it's an all-day, everyday kind of thing. When you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're rising, when you're lying down. And a good example here is what Paul says to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 and 15, Paul writes to Timothy. He's giving him words of encouragement. And he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and catch this, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy was young, but he could say, like the psalmist, long have I known from your testimonies. Why? Because he was taught these things as a child. It's important that we teach our children God's words. And then he says, you founded them forever. God's commandments stand forever. Psalm 111, verse 8, they're established forever and ever. So different than man's words. We say things and then we go back on it. We threaten and we don't carry through. We promise and we don't keep our promises. But God's words are sure. Sometimes it's our conditions, our situation that changes. But God's word never changes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Man's wisdom changes. The current wisdom on whatever the, the, the next thing might be, whether it's, you know, international politics or it's health or it's whatever it is. There, man's wisdom is constantly changing. But God's wisdom is sure. It's unchanging. It's timeless. We're going to look at a principle this morning now that we began last week. And it's an important one for us to understand so that we know how to read our Bibles. And the principle is this. Old Testament case laws illustrate larger principles that have broad application. Last week, the case law we looked at was don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, we're not going to go back to that one. We're going to look at a different case law this morning, but it's still the same principle. There are things here, even though the situation and the culture has changed, there are things that we need to understand, things that God has said that are still true and valid and important today. Here's the particular case law we're going to look at. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. All right, so let's, before we dig into the, the verse itself, let's just kind of say, what are the case laws again? And the purpose of the case laws in general, case laws serve as an illustration of how the moral law applies in various situations in the lives of God's people. It demonstrates a principle. And then if you were a magistrate or a judge, you would take that case law and you would extrapolate out to the situation that you're dealing with. Joe Moorcraft explains it this way. He says, the case laws of the Old Testament being practical applications of the Ten Commandments to everyday life, are also to be included in the moral law of God to which Christians and all mankind today are responsible. 
Now, it's true that there are some culturally embedded forms that these principles come to us in, kind of like the rituals of the ceremonial law. We don't carry out those rituals anymore because that was for a different era. Well, a lot of the case laws, we might not necessarily need to practice the particulars of the case law, but that doesn't mean the law is invalid. It just means we need to understand what the principle is and apply it to the situations that we do face today. So the specifics of the case law are not usually the point. They serve as an example of the principle. Now you could potentially come up with many different examples that would illustrate the same principle. But the example given to us is the case law, which the judges would then use to set precedent by which they would judge other similar cases. Now I want to give you a kind of a historical document that talks about this. You're familiar with, we've talked about before, the Westminster Assembly that writes the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Baptist version of that is the London Confession of Faith, and the second London Confession is done in 1689, and it basically takes the Westminster and it gives the exact same wording, but just adjusts it to fit a Baptist theology. So here's what the second London Confession says regarding this particular topic of the case laws. To them also he gave sundry or various judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people. Okay, when it says it, they expired with the state of that people, the state of that people is referring to the nation of Israel. And so their point is, when the nation of Israel was done, AD 70, then these laws expired. Now when they say expired, they don't mean the principle expired, they mean the particulars. And you can see that as you keep reading not obliging any now by virtue of that institution. So you're not obligated to keep these case laws by being part of Israel today. That's not how the law functions for us. But here's what it says, their general equity only being of moral use. So the general equity of the law is what the confessions are talking about. What does that mean? It means the principle the principle that is dictating the case law. Here's an explanation of the same idea from Greg Bonson. He says that the general equity of the law refers to the underlying moral principle which is illustrated by the particular cases mentioned in the judicial laws. So he says, for the Westminster Puritans, the substance of the judicial laws was just as binding as the Ten Commandments. The judicial laws give definition to the Ten Commandments. When the particular political body for which they were worded, in other words, Israel, passed away, the literal wording or specific form of the judicial laws was put out of gear. Only the underlying principle, the equity, of those historical illustrations continues to be obligatory. Their equity was taken to be perpetually binding. What's he saying? You don't have to worry about the particular law of not boiling a goat in its mother's milk today because the chances of you encountering that particular scenario are slim to none. But the principle that we saw last week about not mixing life and death, that principle holds. And we are obligated to live according to that principle. Okay. So... Before we, again, get to this particular case law, 
Let me give you a, a historical example of how this actually worked out in the life of a country. King Alfred, around 900 AD, wrote a law code for the Anglo-Saxons. And when he did that, what he did was he, he writes out the Ten Commandments verbatim. That's part of the Anglo-Saxon law code. And then he writes out Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, through chapter 23, verse 9. If you know what that section is, that's case laws. So he writes out all those case laws as part of the Anglo-Saxon law code. And then he says this. He says, these are judgments which Almighty God himself spoke to Moses and commanded him to keep. Now, since the Lord's only begotten Son, our God and healing Savior Christ, has come to Middle Earth, by which he means the Mediterranean world, he said that he did not come to break nor to forbid these commandments, but to approve them well and to teach them with all mild-heartedness and lowly-mindedness. So he's saying these case laws Jesus intended for us to continue with. Now, he gives those case laws, adjusted a little bit for his context, and then he adds some case laws for his particular situation. Anglo-Saxon, you know, moving from the 9th to the 10th century culture. And so he gives laws like uh, there's a penalty for fighting in the king's hall. Or there's a, uh, a penalty for um, leaving a dangerous weapon unattended and someone gets hurt with it. Those are particular case laws that he adds in addition to the ones from scripture that he's carried over. And then after Alfred, that case law system becomes what we know as the common law system. And that develops all through England's history. It's actually foundational to almost all of our states. The only exception is Louisiana because that was started by the French. But other than that, that common law is foundational to all of our states here. And so, you know, case law works by setting a precedent and by analogy. The opposite of that would be a top-down, heavy kind of regulatory hierarchy that tries to cover every possible eventuality. And what you end up with is an unmanageable stack, pile of laws that nobody can keep up with. And if any of you work in industries where the regulatory agencies have run amok, you know what I'm talking about. Our legal system has shifted away from the whole common law thing to be a much more regulatory, burdensome system. Let me give you just one quick example of how this plays out in the life of our country. The New Haven Colony, 1644, they say this. They say, it was ordered that the judicial laws of God, as they were delivered to Moses, be a rule to all the courts in this jurisdiction in their proceedings against offenders. If you're a judge in the New Haven colony, what do your laws look like? They look like the Old Testament laws. And the case laws set the precedent and you reason from them to the particular situation that you're judging. That's how it functioned. Now, this particular case law that we're looking at today, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, takes us a little bit just to understand the cultural background, and it's not hard to understand, but there's something different about roofs. 
in ancient Israel. In this time, their roof was like our patio or deck. It was a cooler place to go in the evening when the house had heated up. And so let me just give you some examples from scripture. There are a bunch, but you might have this in a city. So think of the example of Rahab in Jericho. Joshua 2.6, but she had brought the spies up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So her roof is usable space. She's got flax laid out there and she goes and hides the spies there. You could also find this in a palace or a temple. In Judges 16.27 in Philistia, now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Roof of the palace was enough space for 3,000 men and women to be up there. Um, you might consider the story of David and Bathsheba. Both of them are up on the roof. Right? The roof was living space. You, this is still true when we get to the New Testament. You see this with Jesus, with the crowds that are bringing him people to heal. Mark chapter 2, verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. But did you ever ask yourself the question, how did they get the paralytic up there? Well, there would be a set of stairs on the outside of your house. Why take up space inside your house? When you go up there, it's going to be because it's nice weather, so put the stairs on the outside. You go up the stairs, and you use the space as your patio or your deck. But it's high up, and so we get this law in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet or a railing for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. What's the principle that's embedded in this case law? Well, the principle is, the, the idea is that the homeowner is responsible to anticipate how his property presents a likely risk to someone's safety. So he's to take reasonable precautions to prevent any harm. It's not a difficult concept. Look around, and if you see things that are likely to cause harm to someone, take care of it. Prevent that from happening. Okay? You remember the goring ox? If it hadn't happened before, you're not liable, but if it had happened and you knew that the ox had violent tendencies, then you are liable. Why? Because there's a likelihood and you didn't do something to prevent that from happening, that harm. Or um, we have in scripture the example if someone digs a pit and they don't cover it and an animal falls in it, they're liable. Why? You could have foreseen that this is a potential risky situation. So the principle is just anticipating a reasonable expectation of harm. And the basis for this law, which of the Ten Commandments would it be? It's the Sixth Commandment, do not murder. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm not murdering anyone by leaving a railing off of my roof. That's not murder. You're right, it's not. But what's the principle underneath the commandment to not murder? The principle is God values life, and so should we. And if we value life, then it's reasonable that we would prevent any risks to that life being harmed. So no, it's not murder but it is an application of the sixth commandment and learning how to value life. Now, think about this with me. Look at this law and ask yourself, what is the penalty if someone is killed 
or hurt? Well, if someone is killed or hurt, the homeowner is guilty. So if the person dies, it would be like what we would call today negligent homicide. It wouldn't be uh, murder like what we would call a first degree murder because it's not with the intention of setting out to, you know, you're, you're not like scheming to kill someone. This is an accidental thing, but you are still liable. You are still responsible. And so there would be the possibility of a ransom, even if someone dies and it was a capital offense, there's still the, there's the possibility of ransom for the life of the, of the person who's guilty. What if someone's injured? Well, we just take other case laws that give examples of what happens when someone's injured and you apply those principles to this situation. So the case laws are now working together. And some of the principles that we see, you would pay for the medical expenses of the person and you would pay for lost wages. So the person who fails to put a railing around the roof of their, uh, of their house and someone falls off, the, that homeowner is liable for the medical expenses and for the lost wages because they should have foreseen the likelihood that an accident like this could happen. Now, next question. What if someone fails to put up a railing but no one has been hurt yet? What's the penalty or the fine that they get from the local authorities? And the answer is, there is none. Because there's not been any crime. There's not been any harm. And so restitution doesn't come into play. This is the biblical model. You don't fine people for not having put up the fence. But if they make that choice and someone does get hurt, then they are liable. You see the difference in, in, in the, the attitude and approach of the governing authorities? This is kind of treating you as a mature adult who's going to make the decision. It's very different from our current regulatory legal system where we have all kinds of penalties and fines even when there's not any actual damages that have occurred. Now, how would a judge in Israel apply this law? Well, the obvious ones are if someone didn't have a railing around their roof and someone falls off, if there's no railing, you're liable. But think about this scenario. What if you do have a railing? And maybe there's some kids up there goofing around and they climb up on the railing and they're walking around on the railing and one of them falls off and gets hurt. Are you liable? No. Scripturally, you would not be liable because you had done what we would call your due diligence to mitigate the risk. You've foreseen the risk of someone falling off and you put a railing up. Who would be responsible for the medical bill? Well, the parents would be because this is a parenting issue, not a risk mitigation issue at this point. And the judge would take that into account, right? As he looks at the particular case law, when you build a new house, make a parapet for your roof that you don't bring the guilt of blood on your house if anyone should fall from it. And the judge would say, you did exactly what this law was telling you to do. You built the railing. There is no reasonable expectation then that someone would fall and get hurt. You're not liable. 
That's how a judge would handle that. Or let's say somebody digs a well on their property, but they don't cover it. The judge would say, okay, well, I don't have a law on the books about wells, but I do have a law on the books about railings and roofs. And the principle is the same. And so he would apply the, the, the same exact principles to that different scenario. That's how a case law would function. Now, how about modern applications? If this law was, if this case law was on the books for us, how would a judge enforce this today? Well, first of all, if you were setting out to write case laws today, you wouldn't write it this way. You might do it regarding a deck or a patio. You might say something else as your case law. But even this case law, being outdated culturally as it is, we can still understand what the principle is and we can still apply it today. So if you have a second story deck today, you should have a railing around it. That's just reasonable. If you have an in-ground pool, you should put a fence around your pool area. That would be an application of this same principle. So if you don't have a fence and someone falls in and drowns, you would be liable. What if you do have a fence and kids climb the fence and get in and drown? You would not be liable because you had done the work of fulfilling what this law is saying, of taking all the reasonable precautions. That's how the law would function even in a, in a situation like today. But I think we can even go beyond that. I think you can take the principle that's here and apply it even farther out. We have the principles here of valuing life take reasonable precautions, especially for others, and valuing responsibility as well. Right? Because the way this law is written, it gives the homeowner the responsibility. It doesn't give the government the power to, to give a fine or a penalty when there's been no harm. It gives the homeowner the responsibility. So how would you apply that today? Well, regarding the government, the government should be seeking godly justice, not regulatory burdens. I'll just leave it at that. If you have a business, maybe you're, maybe you're in a position in the work that you do where you have some input on this kind of thing. Well, as you have opportunity, give people freedom the way this law gives the homeowner freedom. Give people freedom with responsibility. Freedom without responsibility is a disaster Responsibility without freedom is unfair, but give people freedom with the responsibility that goes with it and the penalties that go with it if they don't take care to carry out that responsibility. Same thing would be true with parenting. As your children get older, as they mature, you give them more and more freedom, but it's freedom with responsibility. And so the responsibility transfers from you kind of over time to your children. But those are all applications that come out of the principle that's embedded in this particular case law. Now, I think it's fair to say that God values freedom and he values life. Both of those are present here. How is it that we get freedom as God's people? I, I, I wanna just think about this spiritually for a moment as we close. Galatians 5, tells us that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, Paul's talking about 
people who are tempted to go back under the Jewish rituals. And he's saying, don't do that. He goes on to say, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Circumcision here is standing in for obeying the whole law, all the rituals and everything. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul's saying, if you seek salvation by means of keeping the law, you have no hope. Instead, salvation comes by means of faith in Christ. And then he goes on to say, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So living in freedom means loving your neighbor. It means putting a railing around your roof. It means putting a fence around your in-ground pool, okay? Living in freedom means loving your neighbor. And when you love your neighbor in freedom like that, you fulfill the law. Not as a means of salvation, but as a standard of righteousness. So use your freedom to love and serve others. That's freedom to live the way that God has designed. It's the way to true fulfillment. Now, we've said previously in the series that law and life go together. The best way to live, the way that God has designed, is to keep God's law. But the law is not a means to gain eternal life. Eternal life can only be gained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Eternal life is a free gift of God to those who have faith in Jesus. Because Jesus took the penalty of the law on himself, now we have been freed from the claims of the law. God's justice tells us that we are free from the claims of the law. So we have freedom, and we have life, and we have it because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we've considered your word, your law, there's so much wisdom there if we take the time to look and to think. And so even a law that seems outdated, I mean, how many of us actually put a railing around our roof today? That kind of law actually does tell us something about how you've called us to live. When we understand the principle that is behind that case law, it shows us something of your character and of your expectations for us. It shows us that you value life and it shows us that you value freedom and responsibility and, all of these things that have great relevance to our lives today. So I pray that you would teach us to see your word in the way that reveals to us what you want us to know about living before you today. And I pray that at every turn, as we go through your word, we would find that we are pointed to Christ. He is the one who has turned your justice from a threat 
into a promise for us. Now we can have every confidence in your justice because your justice says that you will never punish us for the sins that Christ has already paid the penalty for. And so we can have that confidence. We have freedom from the penalty of the law. Not freedom from living lawfully, but freedom from the penalty of the law. And now with that freedom, we want to live in a way that pleases you, that we would walk by the Spirit, that we would love and serve others, and that in doing so, we would fulfill the law. Teach us how to live in a way that's pleasing to you because of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.